Welcome to the Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota podcast. Safe Passage for Children's mission is to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. This series of episodes will take a closer look at our short weekly policy blog, or eBrief. If you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Stick around for this week's eBrief podcast episode featuring Safe Passage for Children's Executive Director, Rich German. Hello, I'm Rich Gehrman, the founder and executive director of Safe Passage for Children, and our blog this week is entitled, The Voice of Early Childhood Development Advocates is Crucial to Child Safety. Child welfare and early childhood development advocates are both concerned about the lifelong impact of trauma, neglect, and abuse on brain development, especially in infants and toddlers. But often, our advocacy in child development arenas, our meaning safe passage, our advocacy in child development arenas for child safety, has been deflected with pointed reminders about the trauma caused by removing children from their, from their families and the importance of respecting families and communities. Well, obviously, both of these things are true. But the trauma of separation does not outweigh that of being maimed or killed. 50% of child fatalities occur before the age of one. So sometimes it's simply necessary to intervene in families in order to preserve children's lives and to preserve their prospects for developing normally. This doesn't always mean removing children, but it does mean interrupting the maltreatment. So consistency requires that early childhood advocates elevate child safety to the top of its agenda. So our commentary on this blog is that when we talk about early childhood development, first we're including early learning professionals who work in early learning programs or who advocate for early learning scholarships, as well as researchers who explore the impact of trauma and brain development in infants and toddlers, and psychologists and counselors who are versed in adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, and, and clinicians who treat children that have been traumatized by abuse, neglect, and sexual abuse. Obviously, professionals in these roles are particularly concerned about preventing childhood trauma and child murders by their caregivers. That's why it's been frustrating and confusing for me when I've been in conversations about aspects of child maltreatment with professionals in early childhood, and the conversations go sideways. You know, I want to be talking about the fact that child welfare policies have become so heavily focused on the interests of parents and communities that we're routinely leaving children in terribly high-risk situations, some of whom are getting killed, and some of whom are damaged for life. And then sometimes the people I'm talking to simply, you know, change the subject or they bring out the concern that removing children from their biohomes is traumatic in itself, as if this meant that it would never be appropriate to get a kid out of a dangerous situation. Or they talk about the importance of respecting families and communities, which is kind of shorthand for saying that we want to eliminate racial bias from decision making, but leaving out the consideration that it is also important to respect the child. And somewhere in the balance, somewhere in that balance, to weigh the safety and the very life of the child. 
So as I've gained experience with this conversation, I've learned to recognize it happening more quickly. And it's the same feeling that you get, for example, in high school when someone doesn't want to be the one to tell you about a party you're not about to get invited to. It's the evasiveness and the changing of the subject for no reason. Or having a person who is very capable of nuanced thinking bring up some extreme objection, some extreme scenario. So I think the underlying issue here is the very sensitive conversation that we're all having about racial discrimination in child protection and foster care. So people naturally tread lightly in these discussions, partly because it's often just really difficult to know what's the best decision. And it's particularly hard for people that have not been in poverty themselves or are not a person of color. And there are many dimensions to this issue, too many to cover in one podcast. So let's zero in on a couple that are relevant to this topic. Let me start by just naming several tropes that are confusing this conversation. One is perpetuating the stereotype that bias in child protection decision-making is because social workers are young, privileged white women who just recently stumbled out of a wealthy suburb and are still blinking in the sunshine. In fact, the last time I looked, about 50% of the child protection workers in Hennepin County, which is Minnesota's largest county, were workers of color. That, by the way, is because management and leadership of the county made a monumental effort several years ago to recruit and retain workers of color. So, you know, credit where credit's due. Kudos to them. And from what I've been able to gather with conversations and looking at statistics, the decisions that child protection workers of color make are virtually indistinguishable from those being made by white social worker. That's because they are all working in the same system. They're following the same laws and practices. They got the same training. But most of all, it's because of their heart. They all got into social work because they want to help people, particularly children in this case. And there are certain situations, the ones that literally wake you up in the middle of the night, where they couldn't live with themselves if they left children where they were. The second stereotype is that it is rarely appropriate to remove children from BIPOC families, which, as you likely know, stands for Black, Indigenous, and Persons of Color. This is inconsistent with the fact that children who are murdered by their caregivers are killed across every demographic. So, in some circumstances, it's necessary to intervene before it's too late in every community or race. And a corollary to this is that it's virtually always better to place children with kin. We keep track of child murders in Minnesota, and one-fifth of them in the last three years have been in kinship placements, at least two of them involving torture. And by torture, we mean the deliberate infliction of physical and psychological harm to a child over an extended period of time with the intention of ultimately killing them. So, kinship placements are not a panacea. Both kinship and traditional foster homes need to be recruited, vetted, and monitored with care, which is not happening consistently across the state. Now, sometimes when we talk about these issues, we're reminded, and fairly so, that children of color, particularly black and indigenous, are removed from their homes at a highly disproportionate rate. And we definitely recognize that there are many things that need to be done to remove racial bias from decision-making. 
And I actually believe, based on my experience in managing state and federal programs, that this can be largely accomplished using just good management practices. But that's a topic for another time. In general, as I have worked in large government systems, over time I've learned, and this is consistent with organizational development research, that when any large system is dysfunctional, like child protection and foster care, it's going to make every error that it's possible to make. It's just going to be out of whack in all directions at the same time. But that said, some types of dysfunction in large systems become dominant. They become the typical misfunction. And in our child welfare system, the dominant problem is that we are giving too much weight to the rights of parents and that the child's best interest rarely gets considered appropriately. Now, if we manage the system as well as we can, we can address all these issues. We can give appropriate weight to the interests of children and at the same time not remove children that don't need to be removed. And we can do these things consistently and reliably. We can also do a better job of supporting families in ways that improve their chances of keeping their children All of these things are not mutually exclusive goals. They are all issues that can be addressed in programs that are managed well with quality and skill. So this gets us to the question of what to do about child safety and well-being in practical terms. First, regarding removing children from BIPOC families disproportionately, the situation is often presented as either leaving children with their bio families or removing them. But as I mentioned in the blog, the goal isn't to remove children per se. The goal is to interrupt the maltreatment. And when you look at it in that perspective, there are other alternatives. Sometimes another adult can be inserted into the household for a period of time, such as a relative or a personal care attendant. And this could be to act as a buffer or another set of eyes on a risky situation so that we know when things are moving in the wrong direction. For example, a parent relapsing on drugs. And also there could be an active safety plan in which conditions are spelled out in advance that would trigger a change. For example, if a person who has been abusing the children suddenly returns to the household, the children could temporarily go to a relative. In neglect situations, which can be somewhat different, children can be enrolled in high-quality child care settings using early learning scholarships because children who are on child protection have priority to get these scholarships. And this would ensure that children, especially infants and toddlers, get the brain stimulation they need to develop normally, while at the same time buying time for the parents to work on their issues without losing the kids. So these are just some of the ways in which we can continue to hold up the importance of family preservation without making the kids pay the ultimate price for that policy. So the bottom line is that for the sake of children in really bad situations, it is really important for child development advocates and child safety advocates to be on the same page and to work through these complex issues together. And my concern is that's not likely to happen until people in both fields acknowledge that we are submerged in cognitive dissonance on this issue because we want the child's safety, but we're reluctant to intervene decisively when things turn deadly. It's not simple to sort out, I know, but I don't believe this is a hopeless task if we just go back to the basic principle of whether a policy or practice or individual decision is in the best interest of the child. 
And actually, it's the field of early childhood development that has made it much easier to apply this principle in a practical way because of the light that they have shed on the long-term consequences of childhood trauma. This has made it clear why it's so important to protect children in a timely, timely way. So, in sorting out decisions, we can simply start by asking whether the direction we are choosing is likely to have long-term, permanent, and severe negative consequences for the child. And while that's not a precise metric, by just asking this question on a consistent basis in both fields, we can make it feasible to sort out conflicting demands and start giving the appropriate weight to the best interests of the child. Well, with that, I want to thank you, Rich, for sharing your time and your expertise on these issues. Again, if you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Until next time, this is Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, working to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential.